Perhaps you've heard the phrase, being on the map. To be on the map means that you are relevant, you are important, and you are essential. You've heard that before. We're on the map. It means people know about us. It means there's people that are going to come here. It means you are relevant, essential, and important. That's what it means to be on the map. Now, um, that phrase is sort of losing weight today because we don't actually pull maps out to see, hmm, what kind of restaurants are around here? Something doesn't have to be on the map anymore because you can just Google restaurants near me and any Joe can submit their restaurant to Google. So you find them all and there's an overwhelming choice. But back in the old days, <laughs> that used to be a thing where if you weren't on the map, you weren't well known. And that would have been a hindrance. Being on the map means we've arrived. We're something. Well, what do you do when you are pushed off the map? When suddenly you don't have a place of relevance, you're no longer essential and you're no longer important to the eyes of everyone else. What do you do? Psalm 2 will show us. Now, before we look at Psalm 2, let me remind you that we are at the beginning of the book of Psalms. The Psalms are 150 prayers stretching from over the course of a thousand years, all compiled into five books meant to be our response to the God who gave us the five books of Moses. So these 150 prayers don't just open up full throttle with room, start praying people. It actually begins with two guardians. Psalms one and two are considered the gateways into the remaining 148 prayers. They're meant to tell you, hey, don't rush in. Don't just use these prayers as some sort of hocus pocus to get the divine being to do what you want him to do. It's about, hey, this is how we approach God. And so these Psalms are guardians to keep us from rushing into prayer and praise to understand what we're doing. So you may remember last week I had said, that think of Psalm 1 and 2 like the two cups of coffee you need to get going. They wake us up to the language of prayer and praise. We need to wake up to this because we don't roll out of bed. Adam and Eve didn't give us the inheritance of prayer and praise. They gave us the inheritance of criticism, of accusation, of blaming, of demanding, and all kinds of other kinds of language that doesn't do anything to help the world. It just leads to the Tower of Babel. That's what they gave us. That's what we're up against. Therefore, we need to, when we roll our souls out of the sleepy bed and into the world, wake up to the fact that there's something else going on. There's another language to speak and learn. And, friends, this language... It's a far better response than we're hearing being used in the language around us. What do we do with the world right now? What do we do with our fears and anxieties? The Bible says, hey, there is a language here to help us cope with these things. But we must learn prayer is a better response to panic and praise is a better response than criticism. And so we've taken one cup of coffee and the first psalm said, meditate. That's how you wake up to prayer and praise. Meditate on scripture. Now tonight, we're going to drink the second cup. How do we wake up to prayer and praise? Meditate. Why should we wake up to prayer and scripture? Because there is a God who deserves our adoration. 
Let's look at Psalm 2. By the way, I don't know know if you're going to see this or not, but it paints a dramatic picture of what's going on today. Why? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is open rebellion. That's what you're reading. The nations are gathering and they all think they're somebody because they got their kings and their rulers like, ho, ho, look at us. And they're beating their chests and they're saying, down with God and with his Messiah. Let's rip the cords off of us. Well, how does God respond to this? Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. laughs. It's a maniacal laugh. You know that not only if you look at the Hebrew, but um, look at the next words coming up. Remember, Hebrew poetry mimics itself as you go, so it often mirrors itself. So, for example, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. It's mockery. That's why he's laughing. He's like, who are these? Imagine an army of ants coming up to you and saying, we want you to move. There you go. That kind of laughter. Like, who who are you? Squash. Then, verse 5, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the nations are anointing their own king, down with God and his king. We want our king. And God's like, (laughs) but I've already crowned a king not a good news when you're trying to rebel, but we'll find out what kind of king this is. Verse 7. Now the voice changes. We heard the nations, then we heard God. Now we're going to hear the anointed, the Messiah, God's king speak. The psalmist says, I will tell the decree. Yahweh said to me, now this is the Messiah speaking. Yahweh said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So Messiah stands up and says, this is what God told me. I'm his son. I'm inheriting every single nation to the ends of the earth. It's all mine. And... I will have a rod of iron, and if I need to, iron and clay is not a good competition. That's like the rebellious nations compared to his rule, an iron rule. So in light of this, the psalmist concludes with an appeal for us. This is what the psalmist wants all the readers and prayers to do. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, O brothers, O sisters, now therefore, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, 
lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That concludes the introduction to the Psalms. One and two go together, and it's evident in a couple of ways. Let me show you first. In Psalm chapter 1, it opens with the word blessed. Psalm chapter 2 closes with the word blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the Psalter is saying, look, if you enter into these prayers, you're entering into the land of blessing. Right? We see that between the two Psalms. Second, um, you see the word way. Chapter 1, verse 6. Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, you go now to chapter 2, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So Psalms 1 and 2 are also letting us know you're not only entering the land of blessing, but you're entering into a way of life. We're entering into a way of prayer and praise. The third comparison or uh, similarity is that both of them, we just read this, they both speak of perishing. You either walk in the way or you perish off of the way. So there's, it's not just, hey, this is just for anyone who just wants to casually enjoy beautiful poetry, the Bible, such literary masterpiece. No, it's for those who actually walk in this life of prayer and praise. Because if you don't, you're going to find yourself perishing in the pessimism and the criticism and the demands and accusations and blames of the world. That's where you will end up. So we need, we need to enter into the Psalter understanding that this is a way and a blessing of the language of prayer and praise. Okay. Now there's one more very significant similarity. I'm going to hold off on it for a moment because I want to reveal it later when it will make better sense. But there's one more similarity. And hint, it has to do with the word meditation. Meditation reappears in this psalm, Hebrew way, at least. In the Hebrew, you'd see it. It's Haggah. But in the English, they translate it into another word, which makes a little more sense given the context. We'll bring that up. Stay tuned. All right. But now what we see here in this psalm is what we feel right now in the world. The nations are rioting. They're raging. They're, they're massive and aggressive. They're trying to prove a point. They're trying to be seen as loud and proud and large and in charge. And as if, if we just put our agenda out far enough, hard enough, um, then we can maybe push over those stinking Christians. That's how we feel, isn't it? We were once we feel, on the map, and now there is an agenda to push us off the map. We, I don't know the agenda of every soul on the earth, but we can feel often that there's an agenda. Or at least, whatever's happening, less and less people are believing in the gospel, and we feel like we're no longer on the map. We've been shoved off, and it, it's hard to deal with that. And so our initial response is, well, if we've been pushed off the map, let's get back on the map. And so what do we do? We have different ways of approaching this. We can approach um, this as the mourner. The mourner says, oh, man, we're off the map. And we victimize ourselves. We say, woe is us. We're just never going to make it in this world. This is our fate. 
wake up, mourner. You need prayer and praise because that's not praying and that's not praising. That is having despair. That is having a pity party, not a prayer and praise party. <laughs> we need not to mourn. God doesn't mourn in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He's not mourning. He's not sweating. He's not going, Welp, there goes my plan. Time for plan B. Hopefully we won't need to get to plan E because I'm out of options after that. That's not his response. So get back on the map. Well, some of us mourn. Some of us take the aggressor route, the mourner route, and then the aggressor route. It's like, if they're going to do that to us, let's do something back. And so we get massive as well. We need his numbers. We need to be loud and proud. We need to be aggressive and aggressively evangelize. And we need to just push our beliefs and we need to prove that our agenda works. And we need to, and there's this whole campaign to just, we're not going to take this and we're going to push this back to them. Well, God doesn't exactly do that either. See, the minute we have to start to prove and to protect and to promote ourselves, we've clearly lost confidence. We're trying to actually prove a point to our own selves. Because often the world doesn't want to hear you yelling back at them. You want to hear yourself yelling back at the world. We feel that. But that doesn't work. So, we can be the mourner, we can be the aggressor, or we can be powerful. We can find power in prayer and praise. I want to show you guys Acts chapter 4. If you can hold Psalms in your finger, Acts is the fourth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And if not, then you can just um, give a good ear to this. But Acts chapter 4 is when the church is very young. It's just starting, and they're sharing the gospel through Jerusalem, and, well, did you, I'm, perhaps you've heard the story, you've read it, but you know that Jerusalem didn't exactly embrace the gospel with open arms. Much of the religious leaders opposed the early church and said, oh, no, you don't. You aren't going to talk like that. And so they actually take some of the disciples, Peter and John, and they reprimand them. And they say, you shall not talk in this name anymore. Well, you know what Peter and John say to them? Should we listen to God or to man? You be the judge. And then they just say, don't speak in the name of Jesus. We're warning you. It'll be bad next time. So they go back to the church, Peter and John, and they report on this opposition. Okay? So in... um. In John 4, verse 23, you read this. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. It was awful. They are so arrogant. They think they can tell us what to do. Something like that. And when they heard it, when the church heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Oh, woe is us. We must stop. We're victimized. No. Oh, let's just go scream in their faces and let's put them in prison and whip them. Nope. They said, Sovereign Lord. That means powerful king. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and here is Psalm 2. 
Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. What is the early church doing there? They're recognizing that they are in the story of Psalm 2. The early church had people trying to wipe them off the map. And what do they do? They don't mourn and they don't become aggressors. Instead, they find power in prayer and praise. They praise God, the Almighty Lord, who made heaven and earth. And then they pray, not just any prayer, they take Psalm 2 as the prayer to pray. That's the power of prayer and praise and how to respond to the problem that's pushing against you. Well, what we realize then is that we don't need to get back on the map. That's not what they were doing. They weren't concerned about their relevance and importance and are we considered essential during this time or not. They weren't trying to get back on that map, Jerusalem's map. They were trying to get on a new map, the Messiah's map. Let me say this super clear. We don't need to get back on our nation's map. We don't need to get back into the relevance of culture. We need to get on Messiah's map. We need a new map. And that's what this psalm shows us. So back in Psalm 2, we realize that everyone is, they're trying to shove the Messiah and God off the map. Wipe them out. We're in charge now. Well, God responds like, okay, um, I've established a king. As for me, verse 6 said, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I'm not afraid. I have a king. Oh, and guess what that means? Your kingdoms don't matter because I have a kingdom. So you have a map with all of your kingdoms and you call that a capital and you call this one better than that one. You try to destroy that one and this one tries to wipe that one off the map and you try to take their resources and you try to trade with them and all these crazy things going on on this map. And the whole time God's like, (laughs) there's another kingdom, a whole new world, a whole new geography, a whole nother map. Why don't you spend more time getting on this map? That's what he's saying. I have a king, and it's the Messiah. I have a king, and I have set him up. This is the new map we need. We need to reorient our lives around Jesus Christ. That is the one who fulfills this psalm. I will tell the decree, verse 7. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Who is the son of God? Who is the son of God? It's a trick question, actually. You're going to say Jesus, and you're right. But this actually, the phrase goes all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, we've referenced 2 Samuel 7 a lot lately because it comes up a lot in the Psalms. 2 Samuel 7 is when David wanted to build God a great house. And then God turns around and says, David, I want to build you a great house. It's a play on words. He's saying, I want to make you a dynasty that will rule and reign forever and ever. And then in that promise, he tells David that your descendants will be like a son to me. So first and foremost, on a general level, God's son was always the king he put in place over Israel. But then came the capital S, son of God, from his very essence. And he stood in David's place as the promised king who would fulfill that forever and ever reign. 
And that is where the church said, the early church said, ah, this psalm is about Jesus. Proof is that second, this psalm too is the most quoted chapter in the New Testament. Of all the Old Testament chapters, Psalm 2 is the most quoted. It was that important. And this very phrase, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is quoted in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Acts chapter 13, verse 33, and it's quoted twice in Hebrews, Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 5. That's four times directly quoted, just this verse. Let alone, you can see, hear the undertones when Jesus comes up out of the water of his baptism and the heavens open and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Not a direct quote, but a reference. It's very clear that the king that God has set up is Jesus of Nazareth, the one who died and was raised and is now ascended at his right hand and is the Messiah, the king of the whole world. That is what we believe. When you face opposition, and when people try to make you feel like you're not relevant, that you don't matter, you're not essential, you're not important, it can feel restricting. It can feel like life is getting small. It can feel like, okay, well, this is all we are. We're just shrinking churches and shrinking relevance and shrinking influence. And you can look at things that way, and many Christians do. Or you can say, yeah, well, when I look at the world's map, maybe that feels true. But when I look at God's map, I recognize that there's something so much bigger going on. He has a king. And this king is king of what? Uh, Ask him, verse 8, ask of me and I will make the corner of Africa your heritage. Oh, that's, see, that's how maybe you feel. Or I will make... The southern Southern states states of America, America, your heritage. The Bible Belt. (laughs) No, no. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth your possession. This is large. This is freeing. This is a big map that we are being given here. And we can be on. So, um, in Romans chapter 1, when it's quoted, you are my son today, have begotten you, Paul says that happened when the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. That's when he was anointed the king. Um, then he goes on to say, and we're proclaiming this resurrection for the obedience of the nations. See, Paul has this psalm in his mind. We're large, and we're going to take this around the world. We're not going to let, if they want to wipe us off the map, whatever. We've got our own map to cover. And it goes from pole to pole, from coast to coast, and then some. Um, in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, where this is quoted again. And by the way, this is Paul's first missionary trip, and it's in Antioch. And it's the first sermon we have of Paul preaching on his first mission trip. So what you know is, It's recording it in length because it's giving us an idea of what Paul would have taught typically wherever he went. So we know that he typically cited Psalm chapter 2 whenever he preached to the Jews. And he tells them, look, we know that, look, uh, we, here, listen to this. He says, we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, all those promises of the Old Testament, he has fulfilled to us their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
by raising him up, he made it known that he is his son. Today he's begotten him. Today he's become king of the world. So Paul's telling them. Now, what happens? What happens in Antioch is many of the Jews hear this and get jealous because they see some of the Gentiles, the nations, believing this message. See, the map's getting bigger. More people are being included, and the Jews got jealous. So what did they start? They literally copied Psalm 2. They raged. They gnashed their teeth. They started a riot and pushed Paul off the map, out of the city. So Paul, guess where he goes next? He goes to Iconium, and um, in Iconium, he's thrown out, and in Lystra, he's thrown out, because these same Jews follow him from city to city until he's eventually stoned to death, and then he gets up and just walks on to the town saloon and says, hey, guys, and they're all freaked out. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we see happening is the early church always faced Psalm 2 everywhere they went, but they didn't focus on the fact that people are raising a clamor against them. They focused on the fact that God said, I have set up my king and today, I've begotten him through the resurrection of Jesus. That's, that's what they kept their focus on. We need a new map, and it's oriented around the Messiah. This will liberate us to live feeling freer and less panicked, less pity party, and less power play punch the other people, and more, okay, we have power in prayer and praise. Prayer and praise does not look at what the people are doing. It looks at the Messiah on the throne. That's what prayer and praise does. So now we can come. If we get our orientation right, then we can act like God acts in verse 4, and we can laugh. Now, I don't encourage you to literally go in people's faces and have a derisive laugh. You think you're something? (laughs) Please don't do that. With a point here, because God didn't literally get, no one has seen God get in their face and do that, okay? So we obviously shouldn't take it to that degree. What is being shown here is God's attitude toward it, okay? We see, first of all, that he's sitting in the heavens. He's not doing this, pulling his hair out or tugging on his white beard. Please don't imagine him having one, but that's how people usually do. He's not doing that. He's not pacing. He's not wiggling like a toddler that has to go to the bathroom. He's not doing any of these things. He's sitting, and he's laughing maniacally. <laughs> That's the attitude we can adopt when we, when we orient a new map around the Messiah and realize we belong in the Messiah. We're important in the Messiah. We're relevant in the Messiah. We are essential in the Messiah. But outside the Messiah, oh, Brandon doesn't have a right to laugh. Brandon has a right to stress, to be in anguish, to feel like my whole life and I don't matter. And oh, no. But we can adopt the attitude in the Messiah of this laughter of everything going around us is, you know what? I've seen the map of the Messiah and it's the entire creation. I can laugh. I can be free. I can live at large in my soul and at ease because I know who holds this and where it's going. So we can sit in the heavens and laugh. That is what people who pray and praise experience. Now, why is God laughing? Well, he knows, and why can we laugh? 
We know he knows who the king is. That's the start. The map. North, true north on this map is the Messiah. We know where we're going now. But this is where our preview of coming attractions comes into play. The word hagah in Hebrew, meditation. Look where it shows up in this psalm. It's in verse 1. See if you can guess it. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Plot is the Hebrew word meditate. Now you can see how that would throw you off if they translated it meditate, so they use the word plot. But it's the same action as chapter 1, verse 2, when it says, on his law we meditate day and night. So the peoples meditate in vain. That's why God can laugh. He looks at their plans, their empty plans, and he looks at their dead-end maps, and he says, you think it's going somewhere? They meditate in vain. Vain is emptiness. They're dwelling upon emptiness. They're expending all of their imaginative, creative, prayerful, praising energy into something that will go to a dead end. And God says, it's, it's empty. Your ambitions, your dreams, everything you're pouring yourself into, this you are plotting in vain. We talked last week that the Christian meditates not by emptying themselves, but by filling themselves with Scripture. The nations meditate by emptying themselves in something that will never come to fruition and, the, and, and, and by, by drawing a map that only leads to a dead end. That's why God laughs. He says, you really, what do you, you really think that's going to work? And that's the perspective we need. Here's the gift of the Psalms, is that they give us the perspective of the heavens. We don't have to let CNN or Fox News be our perspective. We get to see Psalm 2NN or something, I don't know, um, twice news. <laughs> we, we get to look at it from this perspective. And we say, all right. I see the whole map, and it's a lot of squabbling, it's a lot of fighting, it's a lot of chest beating to say, I'm important, no, I'm relevant, you're not essential, but we are, and that's what's happening. People are trying to get on this map, and God's like, <laughs> it goes nowhere, do you want to come and see this one? And he unrolls the map, and it starts in California, Twin Peaks, and it rolls around the world and comes back to Twin Peaks, California, and if you take other scriptures seriously, it probably includes the rest of the universe, which, by the way, God unrolled at the beginning, and it's still unrolling. Which map do you want to be on? I thought so. That's why we can laugh. So, prayer and praise is necessary because we need better reactions. We need a better response. We need a better mode of being in this world. And we can learn from the early church and from the Psalms. So verse 10, 11, and 12 give us the call to action. It's, little, it's, it's framed this way. Um, so at the end, he tells us what to do. Be wise, verse 10. Be warned. Message heard. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. This is not saying pray and praise, but it's the language of prayer and praise. Especially the kiss the sun. 
Psalm 1 asked us to enter into prayer and praise with meditation. Meditating on scripture will anchor us no matter what we're feeling or experiencing in the world. It will anchor us solid. Psalm 2 is asking us to continue in prayer and praise through adoration. So Psalm 1 is meditation, and Psalm 2 is about adoration. Verse 12 again, kiss the sun. That's adoration. It's not lip service. Well, I guess it's kind of lip service in one way, but it's, it's not just word service. It's not, you're great and glorious and grand, and you, you know, strut out of the royal court and go on with your own map-making, navigating. It's kiss the sun is, yep, those words that come out of that mouth connect with the Messiah's mouth. This is intimacy. This is connection. This is closeness. This is adoration. This is not just emptiness. This is full-on coming to him with our prayers, praising who he is, and adoring him. Adoration is what we need more of this day and age. When you look uh, on social media, flip through magazines, um, even look at billboards, bumper stickers, and of course the news too, you get a pretty good idea of what people adore. Toddlers with chocolate on their cheeks and cats. Lots and lots of cats. People stream cat videos and scroll through cat memes all day long. And puppies. We love the cute little things. Cats, kittens, and puppies. Uh, I meant kids. But yeah, kittens, puppies, and kids, and cats, and now I'm gonna don't I'm not gonna I don't want to come across the wrong way. But we do tend to invest more adoration and dignity of life into puppies and kittens than we do into babies and humans. Now, I've been told I'm an animal hater every time I say this. That's not true. But we have our priorities miscued. And if we treated humans the way we treat dogs and cats. Now, I'm, this might sound like I'm off the trail here, that I'm not using the right map. But here's the point. We adore the wrong things. And if we adored the Messiah, and oriented ourselves around him as true north and followed his map, we would find a world that is less at each other's throat, and we would find a healthier Christianity that's less panicked or in a pity party or in a power play or whatever their response is to the threat of being wiped off the map. Adoration in Christ will orient us in his world and map. That is where our adoration should lie. And so here's the great truth. When we enter into adoration, we are now relating to God. There's a relational element through adoration. 
And that's what God wants, is he wants a relationship with his people. But what we're so used to seeing in the world is, and, and I mean in churches, is where you sing religion. That's not relational, but it's functional. It's pray these prayers, hear this sermon, or do our five steps, and all your problems will be cured. But God doesn't work that way. We want to work that way. We want a map that says, if you just go step one, two, three, four, and five, you'll arrive at happiness. That's what religion says. But relationship is never that easy. Otherwise, there would be no adoration. God would be like, okay, here you are again, Ron. I told you to put that idol down. I put it down. Good, get out of here. That's functional religion. But what we're into is relational adoration. And so sometimes the question mark over our head doesn't go away for a long time. Because God says, let's walk together. Let's live together. Let's reason through this. But we so often treat God the way we treat everything. Okay, we don't treat puppies and kittens like this. You pooped in the living room again. Is there a pill I can just give it? No, we, yes, we correct it, but then we love it, and we, we're patiently trying to teach it where to poop properly, and that's relational. We build relationships with puppies and kittens. God wants to build a relationship with us. He wants adoration. But we actually, truthfully, most of the time, just want a God who gives us what we need, and we can have your realm, but I'm gonna, I just need this because the traffic in this map is awful. You don't understand what it's like to be a human. And then you can hear the maniacal laugh. I <laughs> Really, I don't? Because God became a human in Jesus. And we were the nations that rose up and plotted in vain. We meditated on how to kill him. He knows. He's calling us into adoration. So we must learn the language of prayer and praise. Or... Like the psalm says, we perish along the way. And yeah, if, if Christianity doesn't learn how to pray and doesn't learn how to praise the king, I will be concerned about its effectiveness in the world. I don't think we're going we're gonna to be wiped off the map, clean, non-existent. That's, that's not going to happen because God has to come for us. Um, but we will be as if we don't exist if we don't learn how to pray through our problems and praise when times look ugly and when the world is spitting their empty vanities and plans. And If we don't learn to pray and praise, we will perish. And that's what the psalm is asking us to do. So let's kiss the son, let's adore him.